couple of more announcements for you. Uh, just to highlight some summer get-togethers, here's what we're doing this summer. Um, I really uh, believe that uh, as we come out of this pandemic, uh, what we need is to reconnect with each other. Uh, we have been in our pods, we have been in our families, we have been in our homes. Y'all have been coming here, but, but you know, sitting here in this room with masks on is very different than hanging out someplace. And so uh, what we have planning on, uh, Lord willing, is every Wednesday night, like Andrew said, just to be at the Meadows, which is outside, at Highland Brewery. And here's why we're doing that. Uh, one, they've got food trucks. So grab a bite, hang out. You don't have to drink. It is wide open, and it is a place where the kids can run wild, and the adults can hang out and reconnect. So that's what we're doing. And then, and then on top of that consistent one, we're also doing uh, other opportunities where people can gather. We're getting hikes together, stuff like that. But if you have an idea of something you want to do, email me. Uh, and I will put that on our summer registration as a summer get-together. If there's a certain trail you've wanted to hike and you've got some people that you, you want to invite people to go with you, if you have a book that you want to have a couple of, of group meetings to kind of work through a book together, let, let's talk about that. Uh, because the theme for the next few months is reconnect. Because I want us to reconnect and get to know each other again. Doesn't that sound like fun? I, it does to me anyway. So we'll see. We'll see if it works. I'm glad to see some head nods. Um, <clears throat> I also want to talk about uh, uh, the, the CDC announcement, the governor's announcement and all that, and why we're taking our time to make a decision about what that means for church. Here's why. Going through this pandemic, one of the things that we have learned is that when we take time to make a decision, we make a much wiser and better decision. And so when the CDC made their announcement on Thursday, the governor made his announcement on Friday, uh, we felt like there was uh, just too much around that to be able to make a decision for this week about what to do with masks and all that stuff. That's why we kept everything the same. I say that because I want you to know we are still in the process of making that decision, and you will get an update this week. And what I ask you to do is to pray. Pray for, pray for the staff, pray for the elders as we make this decision about what it means moving forward and as we navigate all the factors of the organizations that use this building, the multiple people that are here on Sundays, and everything that goes into that. Speaking of services... Starting June 6th, we're going to have three different ways for you to engage with us on, on Sunday. We're going to have two in-person services, one at 9 and one at 11, and then the online service at 11. And, and, and the reason I say that is if you're a person who joins us online, you're going to notice a shift uh, starting June 6th. Right now, uh, if you join us on Facebook or on our website, uh, you, there's a certain level of engagement with staff and volunteers on both of those platforms. Starting June 6th, we're going to move all that volunteer energy to just our website for engagement. And here's why. Uh, one of our visions here at Fellowship Asheville is that we want to create environments where life change is possible, where life change can happen. And, and, and part of that is uh, there's a whole lot of factors to that. We kind of consider ourselves environmentalists, right? We're like holy environmentalists. And a part of that is navigating volunteer energy, volunteer availability, uh, putting the right people in the right place to, to, to create this environment where God can do and the gospel can do what only the gospel can do. As we move to two services, our volunteer energy is going to be dispersed. And so it makes us make decisions about where do we want to focus that energy. And we feel like the best place to focus that energy online is that platform through our website because it just has more tools for engagement there. 
Because that's what we want. We don't want people to just watch online and absorb the content. We want you to engage as you're absorbing the content. And that online platform, if you haven't been there, you just go to fellowshipashville.com and and click join us online. But that online platform, uh, you can pray with someone. We've got prayer team people there. And when you request prayer, uh, it opens up this chat room for you to share what's on your heart. And that prayer team person is there to pray with you uh, virtually. Uh, you, can, you can raise your hand to accept Christ and, and someone will follow up with you. You can also create chat rooms uh, with people that you haven't connected with in a while. And so there's just a lot more opportunity for engagement uh, than there is on Facebook. And so, so, so that's why we're gonna, you're going to notice that shift. Facebook is still going to be up and running and you're going you're gonna to see the stuff there and it'll be fine. But if you want engagement, go to our website. All right. Are we clear on that? Great. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to change someone else? All right, no elbows, no pointing, none of that. Have you ever wanted to change someone else? Like, like, and here's what I mean. I mean, maybe it's a big drastic change. Maybe it's a little change. Maybe you see a little change in their life would make your life better and their life better, right? Has anybody ever wanted to do that? Maybe, maybe a child is way too irresponsible, maybe even rebellious, kids. Maybe your parents have too many rules for you and you would love to to see that change. Maybe you have a spouse that doesn't pay too much attention or spends too much money or, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you have a boss that's just mean, right? Maybe, maybe you have a boss that doesn't recognize the, the work that you do. Maybe the person you're dating is just kind of forgetful instead of intentional. Maybe a friend is just way too dramatic, right? In all these environments, in all these situations, in all these relationships, a little bit of change would go a long way, wouldn't it? Well, the question is, how can you change them? Now, in chemistry, there's this thing called a catalyst. And what a catalyst is, is a catalyst is a chemical that you can introduce into another chemical environment, and it actually changes what's happening between those chemicals. And the catalyst, actually what makes it a catalyst is that it doesn't change, but it produces change. Think about it like this. Think about it like a a coach, right? A coach is on the sidelines telling the team what to do and waving their hands and giving, giving plays and all this. A coach's job is to produce change in what's going on on the field and make it better. A catalyst is a lot like a coach. It's something that produces change. Well, today we're going to talk about a catalyst. We're going to talk about something that produces change in someone else. But I think what we're going to see is this catalyst is something that we all need and that starts with us. And so turn to uh, the book of Ezra and we're going to be in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And just so you know, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, But before we do that, if if you're new to this series called Rebuilders, uh, as we talk about what it looks like to be a rebuilder with God, especially as we come out of this this pandemic, uh, we've been asking this question and we've been listening to the Holy Spirit to get an answer to it. And the question that we've been asking is this, what is God stirring in me? What does God have for me as we come out of, out of this pandemic and as we, as we, as we, as we rebuild with him? The, the answer to this question helps us move forward. And, and as we've been doing this, we've been going through the book of Ezra and we're going to start Nehemiah next week. Yeah. And, 
and as we've been doing that, we've identified certain tools and signs that are important for rebuilders. Like in Ezra chapter 1 through 2, we saw an alarm clock, right? That's why there's an alarm clock up there. Because we saw God awaken people. You know, we talked about this being God's alarm clock, that he awakened a pagan king and he awakened a, a group of people to move back, to, to ransackled Israel, to, to rebuild this temple. And that's where we started asking the question and praying about what is God stirring in us, something that only he can do. What, what is God doing in me that's something that only God can do? And then we saw immediately after that alarm clock went off, in Ezra's chapter 3 and 4, we saw a detour sign. Because in those chapters, we saw that every holy proposition faces unholy opposition. That everything God is asking you to do, everything that God is stirring in you to do, everything that God is stirring in us to do as a church will face opposition. And this opposition made the nation of Israel hit pause for years on rebuilding the temple. But then in Ezra chapters 5 and 6, we had, we had matches up here, right? Because we all need fire starters in our life. We all need people that will get us back on track with God. People that will get us back in line with God. We all need fire starters, and we saw that God, what God starts is what God finishes, right? And then in chapters 7 through 8 last week, we saw blueprints, and we were introduced to Ezra, the guy that, that wrote these books, the guy that wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, most scholars believe, the guy that this book in particular is named after, and we saw him go back to the land, and we saw him go back to the land with a mission, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, For Ezra had said in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statues and rules in Israel. And so we saw Ezra had this mission to go back and to embody and to live the truth of God's word in front and with the people and then to call them and teach them to follow God's word. We saw that God's word was his blueprint and we talked about how God's word is our blueprint as we're rebuilders. If it doesn't line up with God's word, it doesn't need to line up with us. And if it does line up with God's word, it needs to, to line up with us. Well, that leads us to where we are today. In Ezra chapter 7 through 10, the temple is completed and it is built and it is full of supplies and the word of God is being taught, right? And so right now, life is good in the nation of Israel again. But here's what Ezra is going to do is he's going to see this big sin problem in the nation of Israel. And he's going to see something that needs to change in the nation, which is why he is a great person for us to look at about what do we do when we see change is needed in someone else. And he's going to show us this best change agent. He's going to show us this best catalyst. catalyst. So look at Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the, hands, the hand of the, of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. And so now in chapter 9, we get introduced to the sin problem that's in the nation of Israel. The people of Israel were being married to, to the people of different nations. And if you look at the very last, the end of chapter, I mean the end of verse 2, we see who is doing this more than anybody else. 
right? It says the officials and the chief men. It means that the leaders of the nation were doing this predominantly more than than the people of the nation were. And this included the religious leaders. This included the Levites. This included those who were to stand between the nation and God and to represent the nation to God and represent God to the nation. Now, I want to get a good picture of this because it's easy to read this and to think this is about race. This is about where someone's from. This is about where someone looks like. That that race would say, you can't marry this person just because they're from over there. You can't marry this person just because they look different, just because they are different. But what we're going to see is that this had nothing to do with race. This was about relationship. This This wasn't about race. It was about a relationship with God that was at stake. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, if you want to turn there, I want to read it. Now, Deuteronomy is this book of law. And it, you, know, you have Leviticus, which is a book of law, and you have Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. And, and the reason this is a second law is because they were, the nation of Israel was given the law from God first. And then they wandered through the desert for 40 years, and that generation died. And so they needed the law again for a new generation that was about to enter into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy has a lot of stuff similar with Leviticus. But it has in its mind people that are about to enter into the promised land. And it's like a map for them how to have a relationship with God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it has this very uncanny application Specifically for Ezra, who came hundreds of years later. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 says this. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perserites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you to defeat them, then you must Devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces the pillars and chop down the ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Now, if I stopped here, that would sound very harsh, right? Like, like when Israel came into this land, they were to destroy every remnant of the civilizations that were there. But here's why God says this. Because remember, it's not about race, it's about relationship to God. Look at verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And that treasured possession is a relationship with him. Out of all the peoples of the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the peoples. In other words, it wasn't because of anything you've done that God chose you. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord that has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so the reason... That, that this intermarrying uh, was a big deal was because this intermarrying was an issue about their relationship with God, right? 
because God wanted them to know, listen, I have chosen you. I have treasured you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I love you is what God is saying. And so this intermarrying to God was like this. It's it's like an adulterous relationship, right? Because to him, this, this, this nation, to bring another religion into this nation would be like a man bringing his mistress over for dinner with his wife, right? Like, that doesn't work because it's about the relationship being broken. Now, Malachi, we're kind of jumping all over here, but bear with me. Malachi uh, was a prophet. So that's what Deuteronomy said, right? That's what the law of God said in their past. That's what Ezra was referring to. Well, they also had these people called prophets that were with them, with Ezra and the nation of Israel at this time. And prophets would declare the word of God. In other words, you had the law to tell you what God, what God thought and, and, and the truth of what God was, was dealing with. And then you had these prophets that would highlight God's word. And a lot of times the prophets told you what God was feeling in that moment. Right? They told you that God is a jealous God, that, that God desires for your love. They told you to re- confess and repent. Well, Malachi is one of those prophets to the nation of Israel that was rebuilding at the time. And in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. Malachi is a prophet, and he says this. He says, Have we not all one Father, and has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been fatherless, uh, and abomination has commit and and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. All right, so this we know. But Malachi gives us a little more insight into what's going on. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord cut them off for the tents of Jacob, any descendant of man who does this, uh, who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing that you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering uh, or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, whom you have been faithless through your, through your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, Malachi adds a little bit more information. He says, not only are you intermarrying with other people, you are leaving your first wife to go to them. You are, you are divorcing your wife to marry your girlfriend, to marry this people of another nation, of another race, of another faith. And so I'll stop there just for time because here we see the, the issues, right? We see the issues that, that a man would leave his wife to marry a woman of another religion or that a, that, that a woman would, would marry a man of a different religion. And, and so the problem is twofold. One, it's hindering their relationship with God. And two, it's breaking a covenant with a spouse. This is what Ezra sees. This is what Ezra has to deal with. So, so the way he approaches this, I think, is great insight for us. Right? Because if there's ever a group of people that needed change, it's this group of people. And so, so turn back to Ezra and look at how, how he responds in Ezra uh, verses 3 and 4. He, it says this. It says, As soon as I heard this, I immediately threw a fit and in a rage of anger made the nation memorize Deuteronomy chapter 7, the whole chapter. I punished everyone who had committed the sin. Does it say that? No, you know what? Because that's what I would do. Right? That's probably what you would do in that situation. But it's not what Ezra does. 
That's why this is so great. And that's why we have to pay attention to this. Look at, look at uh, verse 9, chapter 3. And this is Ezra. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled, while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So what does Ezra do? He stops. Right? He doesn't make some rash decision. He stops. And he stops and he will see that he prays and he gathers around him the people uh, who honor the word of God to. And they're with him in his, in, his, in his stopping. But then look at what he does in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to, to, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a very little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving and, and to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh God, we shall, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants and priests, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of is the land uh, impure and, and with impurity of the peoples of the lands, with the abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons and neither take their daughters for your sons and never, and never seek their peace or prosperity, for you may be strong and eat in the good of the land and, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandment again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant or escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just." For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. And so this nation is in sin. And Ezra sees it and Ezra feels it. And, 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 and it's a sin that desperately needs to change their ways. And so what does Ezra do to produce this same change? He does the one thing that any of us can do when we see change in someone else. When we see change needed in someone else, when we want to produce change in someone else, in him we see the catalyst. And so to change someone else, y'all, listen to this, only requires one thing out of you. And it's this, it's humility. 
Now, how many of you thought I was going to say prayer, right? Because Ezra was praying, right? And it's easy to say, well, I'll just pray for him. No, no, no. It requires something else. It requires humility because that's what we see in Ezra, right? A a definition for humility that I've landed on over the years is this. It's not perfect, but it's good enough for me. Hopefully it'll be good enough for you. Humility is knowing where you stop and God starts. Right? Humility is knowing where you stop and God starts. You see, humility is our tool today. And and our tool to add is this plumb line. Anybody seen one of these? What this is used for it's used by builders to measure something that is straight up and down like a wall. And, it, and it's used by builders that when, to, to make things look right uh, when they look out of sorts. Because if you hold this up and it goes straight down, you've got a straight line. And the wall may be wonky and they can see where it's wonky and fix it. And to Ezra, God's word is a plumb line, right? To show what is straight and true when everything else is, is, is wonky and, and, and out of sight. And according to God's word, what he sees in this nation is sin. Because you see, Ezra was faced with this huge problem and he realized something. He realized that only God can change this nation. He can't change it. Only God can change this nation. And so he did what only he could do is that he asked God to do what only God can do. Only God can bring this nation to confession and repentance, not him. And so church, let's stop here for a minute. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you, when I said, is there someone in your life that needs change, a name and a face came to your mind, right? It probably did. We all do. And here's what we do. We try these tools to produce change in them. We try the unhealthy ones. We try control, right? We try manipulation. We try to unjustly punish them. And how do I know we do this? Because I do those things. Right? Y'all may not know this about me, but, but inside, I am what I, I affectionately call, because it's my sin, I call it a closet control freak. Right? On the outside, I look very calm in, in, in stressful situations. On the inside, I'm a control freak. I want you to do it my way, knowing my way may not be the right way. Chances are my way isn't the right way. My wife's way is the right way, but I still want you to do it my way. Right? Because I want to control. Now, maybe you're not a closet control freak. Maybe you're full on out of the closet, right? Like you are just out there as a control freak. Maybe manipulation is your thing. Maybe, maybe unjust punishment is your thing. Maybe in your head are the phrases that if they won't change, I will make them change. Anybody thought that with your kids, right? Maybe in relationships is, is if they won't change, I will keep hurting them until they change. Now, you may not use the word hurt. You might use the word punish or discipline. But you know your own heart and you know it might be coming from a place of anger instead of a place of, of restoration. You see, that's where unjust punishment comes from. Now, the alternative to this is humility. Because when we stop and pray, here's what it does. When we stop in humility... And look at our own heart before looking at what we think is in someone else's. It's showing this humble trust in God is what it does. It's showing that, that you acknowledge that God can really only change this person. And so, so what would it change if we started with humility? What, 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 what would change? Because see, see, here's what humility does. Humility asks people to live like Jesus, not like us. 
That's what humility does. You see, humility creates boundaries and, and, and protection because it's pointing people to Jesus and not to us. Listen, if I wanted you to live like me, all I would be doing is asking you to swap your sin for mine. Why not point each other to the one who is without sin and to the one who lived this human life perfectly? Why not point each other in humility to Jesus? Because when we do that, when I say look at him instead of looking at me, when we say look at him instead of looking at us, humility allows people to make mistakes. Right? It even, and this sounds scandalous, it even allows people to sin and to sin continually without having to carry the weight of their sin. Right? And y'all, that's, that's hard work. Because notice too in Ezra's prayer, he includes himself and their sin. Like that's one of the things that jumped out to me. He's not to God saying, God, look at what they're doing. Right? He's saying, God, look at what we've done. Now part of that is the, the mindset of the nation of Israel. They were a community mindset. They only thought in we's and us's. They didn't think in I's. Americans, we think in I's. Right? We think in me's. It might do us good to think in some we's and us's. Because it produces humility. Ezra saw their sin as guilty as his own sin because he realizes that if not that sin, he's got plenty of other sins that can stack up, right? You see, humility recognizes our sin, not your sin. And this is why we don't ask people to live like us. This, this is why we don't just swap out our sin uh, for mine. Instead, we point them to the one without sin. Well, let's see how this nation responds to this. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people uh, wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, uh, the son of Jael and the son of Elam, addressed Ezra and said this, he said, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And that those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. In other words, the nation recognized the problem. The stuff that Ezra was praying for in humility, the nation saw. They heard him pray and they realized, oh, he's talking about me. He's talking about us. You see, recognizing the problem is step one. That's what confession is, right? Confession is seeing sin uh, the way God sees sin and not seeing it as a simple mistake or not seeing is it a bad choice or is it a failure, seeing the sin in it because that's the way God sees it. And confession leads to change, right? When you see the sin for the sin, you see the dirtiness of it. You see the fact that it actually hinders your relationship with the God who loves you and the God who made you. And that's what confession is. It's simply acknowledging the fact that, yeah, that was sin that made me do that. You see, our sins are those actions that God says not to do and we do, or it's those actions that God says to do and we don't do. That is sin. And when we see that in our heart as sin and confess it to God, it begins the process of change because confession leads to change. 
And so the nation sees this sin and it starts the process of change. Look at what Ezra does in chapter in verse 5. It says, Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. And then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the t- chamber of Jehoiakim, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And so what does Ezra do again? After this, this, this confession has been made, he steps back again. And he goes into a time of fasting and prayer. Now there's mourning there still. He's still feeling the grief of this, but he went to God. Why? Because he understood something. He understood where, where, where God started and he stopped. He understood humility was the catalyst for this change. And humility is knowing where we stop and God starts. But, but here's something else that humility needs to, needs to be said. Because, because if not, this is when we throw the towel in. Humility still fills the weight of sin. Right? Humility still fills this, this weight. You see, Ezra cares deeply for these these people because they are his people. They are are his community. They are his family. But humility feels the pain of others. And prayer allows us to let God carry the weight of that sin, though. You know the word glory? Have you ever heard glory to God, glory to God, like all of that? The word glory means weight. It means God gets the weight of this. God gets the pressure of this. And so when we say glory to God, it is as if we're saying, hey, listen, I care about this, but God, you've got to carry the weight of this. I want to work with you in this. If you go forward, I'll go forward. If you turn right, I'll turn right. If you turn left, I'll turn left. But the weight is on you. And this is pictured no better than in our gospel because humility feels the pain of others. But prayer allows, allows God to carry the weight of the sin. And that's what our gospel is. That literally carried the weight of our sins. Right? And he carries them because we can't. And, and, and listen to me, if you're here or if you're at home, if you feel weight right now, if you feel the weight of your own sin, your own mistakes, your own failures, let Jesus carry that. Because he's the only one who can. And he proved it by dying on a cross and then raising from the dead to show that that weight doesn't weigh him down like it weighs us down. He's the one that can carry it. And so today, if you want to get rid of that weight, say yes to Jesus and follow him. Let him be the author and perfecter of your faith. Because you see, when, when we carry the weight of our sin, when we carry the weight of other people's sin, we control, we manipulate, and we unjustly punish. But when God carries that weight for us, we can love them. We can have compassion for them. We can point them to Jesus. You see, humility, knowing where you stop and God starts, allows you to do something very powerful. You see, humility allows you to carry, I mean, allows you to care without carrying. Right? Humility allows you to care about the sin in someone else's life. But you realize you don't have to carry that sin. Humility allows you to care for people in their pain, to care for people even as they choose sin and choose it repeatedly. Y'all, do you have somebody in your life who continually chooses sin? Right? Yes, you probably do. Actually, I'm going to make a point in a minute. I guarantee you, you do. 
do you want to care for them without carrying the weight of that sin? You see, you can be free from the weight of it. And it allows you to care without controlling. It allows you to care without manipulating. It allows you to care without unjustly punishing. Because look at what this produces. Verse 7, it says this. It says, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by the order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. All right, there was a plan made. Seems pretty harsh, right? They had to be there in three days or they lost their land, but there was a plan made, right? You see, change requires a plan, and what's interesting is this plan was made by the people there. Ezra didn't make this plan. This plan was made by the people. And the best plans are made by those who need the change, not by those who are outside of it seeing the change. Look at verse 9. It says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days, and it was the ninth month of the twelfth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the Lord God, trembling because of this matter, and because of the heavy rain. Now, this, this month is a cold month. That's what you see, right? So, so not only are they trembling because um, uh, of the, the weight of their own sin, they're also trembling because it is raining and it is cold outside, right? And I love that Ezra put this in there because here's, here's what it shows. It shows that they were willing to make a sacrifice to deal with this sin. They were willing to, to sacrifice their own comfort to finally confess and repent of this sin. Because this month is December, right? And it's cold and it requires personal discomfort. Most change, y'all, requires discomfort. Right? Change takes sacrifice. The person who needs change not only gets to come up with a plan for that change, that change takes sacrifice. There has to be some skin in the game. And again, this is from the person needing that change. One of my mentors in counseling, her name is Kim Humphreys. And she told me one time, she said, Fred, listen, if you're working harder than they are for the change, you're going to be the only one burnt out. And she said, you don't work harder than the people you're working with. It's their work to change, not your work. Y'all, that has saved me so much emotional time and energy in counseling. You see, they do the work, not you. If it's you doing the work, guess what you're doing? You're controlling, you're manipulating, and you're unjustly punishing. Look at verse 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and have married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you've said. But the people are many, and, and, it's time, uh, and it is a time of heavy rain, and we cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly, and let all of our cities who have, who have taken, and let all of our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city until the, the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Eshael, and Jehezza, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshalum and Shabbathai, the Levite, supported them. 
And the returned exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men and heads of fathers of houses according to the fathers of houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month they sat down to examine the matter, and on the first day of the first month they had come to an end of all the men who had married foreign women. So here's what they do. They interview everyone who sinned. Right? They sit down with them. They, they, they make this proclamation, but they say, hey, this is a proclamation. I want to see how you fit into this proclamation. And here's why. Because remember, this wasn't about race. They couldn't just look at the crowd and go, you, 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 and you are obviously in sin because of the way you look. They said, no, we need to sit down and listen because the God of Israel says Abraham was to be blessed so that he could be a nation, be a blessing for all the nations. And so it could be that this marriage sitting in front of them looks like a marriage of sin. But in reality, both spouses are, are followers of God. In reality, this wasn't a marriage that broke off a covenant before to make this one. In reality, this could have been a good and holy marriage sitting in front of them. Although it looks like a marriage that looks like a marriage of sin like the rest of the nation. And, and they set in their hearts and minds, we've got to do this right. And we've got to do this through relationships. So not only does plan, does change take a plan and a sacrifice. Here we say, we see that change takes patience and it gets personal right? Now, how many of you that hurt a little bit to say change takes patience, right? Because it does. It takes time. Change takes time, and it takes relationships. So church, hear me on this, and let's understand the change we want in others starts with a humble change in us first. And this humility in us creates patience and it, cre- and it embraces the relationship. Now verse 18 to the end of the chapter, I'm not going to read all of it because it is a list of names and you see how I do with those, right? But the names of these families are the names of the families that had sinned in the way that, that they had seen. But look at the last verse. Go all the way to verse 44 at the end of chapter 10. It says, And all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. This gets personal. Right? We're dealing with kids here, not just marriage, which is why this took time. Because it doesn't get any more personal than when you're dealing with children. And so now let me ask you this. Can we relate to Ezra in this? Can we relate to seeing that change needs to happen, that those around us uh, need change? And, but, but here's the deal. And Ezra, we also see this humility. We also see this understanding that sin has actually broken all. We all need change. And y'all, the greatest path to this kind of humility is the gospel. It is Jesus. It is the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus actually taught on this very thing. Right? This, this life of grace and humility actually starts with us seeing our sin as greater than the sins of others. Because Jesus said this. He said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log in your own eye? Right? Jesus is speaking in, in a form of an illustration. And he's saying, man, you're talking about their sin, but hello, you need to deal with your own sin. As a matter of fact, if you look at your own sin, you're going to see that your sin is much bigger than what you're saying their sin is. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, own, your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And then he has this harsh word. He goes, you Hypocrite. Now this word is, is the word that means that like an actor that has a mask on, right? That you're, you're acting this way on the outside, but in the inside is someone completely different. 
He's saying, pay attention to that person behind the mask. Because he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, Jesus helps you and me to see the, the speck in our eye that's really a log. And then we can deal with the speck in someone else's. However, I'm going to tell you all this. When you sit with Jesus and you sit open-handed and you say, God, I see change that needs to happen in them, but I want you to show change that happens in me. It gets real. Like, y'all, even this morning, I was struggling with someone. And, and this is all in my head, struggling, right? Because this is where it starts, right? And I was struggling with them. And, and literally, I was, I was like, Jesus, if they did this, it would be better for them. It would be better for me. And then Jesus reminded me of what I was going to preach y'all this morning, which I love it when he does that, right? And he said, what needs to happen in you first? What needs to happen in you first? And I had to confess my own passivity in this. I had to confess to God my own arrogance in this. And then in the beauty of Jesus, like it wasn't, it's not like he's sitting there going, see, I told you. Like Jesus meets us in our sin with great humility and great patience and incredibly tender care. And he models that as we meet other people in their sin. And what he asked me to do was something very tangent, which I did right then. I don't know if it'll help or not, but, 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 but it's real, right? And it's a real step. You see, this kind of love is the love that transforms. A person can change many things, but only God transforms. And that transformation starts with you and then pours out from you to others. In Romans 2, 4, it says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, I have a question for you today. Do you still need that Jesus today? Do you still need that gospel today? Do you still need him to show you what walking in humility and patience looks like? Yeah. You see, we need Jesus to change us instead of us trying to change them. We need Jesus to change us as we are trying to introduce change into this world around us. And our tools should never be that of control or manipulation or unjust punishment. Our tools are a loving, humble relationship with God. You see, according to Ezra, how do you act when you see someone sinning? Your first step is humility. Your second step is to say, what do I need to confess? And so here's what I want you to do this day. Uh, this week. Maybe today. You can do it today. Check the box. Get it over with. But here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to actually spend some time in humble prayer before God. And I want you to ask this question. Who do I need to apologize to this week? Right? Where have I sinned against someone else that I need to apologize and seek forgiveness? And I want you to do that this week, church. I want change to start with us before it moves out to others. Are we good? Okay, well, let's pray. Jesus, whew, that was a lot. Um, and you love us a whole lot. And you love us enough that, that, that you want our relationship to be with you and you only. And so I pray for, for us as a church today, if there is something uh, that we have been holding on to, if there is sin that we have been holding on to, I pray that we confess that to another follower of Jesus. And maybe 
It is a confession for healing, like in the book of James, confess your sins one to another so that you will be healed. Or maybe it is a, a, a confession in relationship where, where we have done something to put ourselves above someone else and we need to apologize for that and seek a healing in that relationship. Or maybe it's, it's just something that we've done that the other person doesn't even recognize as sin, but we do. And we need to call it what it is and confess it and repent and turn away from it. And so, Father, may we as a church do that. May we as a church respond to the world around us in humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.